Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, have you ever felt manipulated? Uh, I'm sure that maybe over the past few years you certainly have. Uh, fear not, because there's a great new book out which talks all about the ways in which we are led to persuasion or how we are manipulated in almost all areas of our lives. Um, it's called Free Your Mind here and I'm very pleased to be joined by the authors Laura Dodsworth who as you might remember is a best-selling author of State of Fear and the behavioral scientist Patrick Fagan. Um, thank you very much for coming. Um, I was fascinated by the well the breadth that you uh, uh, of the information in this book. Um, did it come naturally for you Laura out of State of Fear? Yes it did. For me, it was um, it was a very natural follow-on. When I wrote A State of Fear, I have to say for me, I had this big epiphany. Um, to see the, the mass evocation of compliance mm. in people with very draconian rules, yeah. which was induced not just by natural fear of a virus and a pandemic. You know, there would be a natural fear and a natural yeah. wanting to shelter and stay indoors. We know from Google mobility data, people stayed home. It was more than that, of course. It was um, a deliberate campaign of yeah. persuasion, propaganda, nudging, and of course, fear-mongering. Mm. And seeing how people could be persuaded to completely change their lives, mm. uh, to stay indoors, to stop working, having relationships, seeing family, worshiping, mm. for the most personal parts of their lives, such as births, marriages, and deaths, to be dictated by the state, I had a big epiphany and I thought, my my freedom has been an illusion yeah but my mind my mind is my space yeah and i will do all i can to control my own mind so it got to the end of a state of fear and i perhaps naively tried to persuade the government to investigate its own use of behavioral science mm -hmm. through the public administration constitutional affairs committee which failed and of course i've written about all this you know non-stop and the truth is there's no government white knights mm. And nobody is coming to save people from manipulation and propaganda. You know, corporations want you to buy brand A, not brand B. Charities want you to give money to them. Social media has set itself up to be as addictive as any slot machine in a casino to yeah. keep your attention. And governments are most certainly not above using behavioral science and propaganda mm. on the people it's supposed to serve. And so, I think for a lot of people there's a feeling of um, a net tightening. I think a lot mm. of people relate to what I'm going to say even though I can't pinpoint it exactly. There's a feeling that something is tightening, that truth is being squashed, that any deviation from the norm is to be punished. Mm. And in this time what do you do? You know there's a feeling that society is like a plane in freefall and when it is you need to put your own oxygen mask on first. Mm. And so I've thought non-stop about basically the state we're in for the last few years. And I came down to the first thing you have to do, you as an individual, is get your house in order. And it starts with your mind. It starts with being an individual, knowing your own mind. And that means understanding how other people seek to control your mind. One thing I've, I liked about the book so is the fact, uh, uh, Patrick, is that you have kind of little suggestions, not rules maybe, but suggestions about what people can do at the end of every chapter. Yes, absolutely. So it's not uh, all doom and gloom, although there's yeah. some of that in there, you know. Yeah. Uh, we're not in a, a great place um, and AI and, and technology and social media are probably taking us somewhere dark potentially uh, unless we do something about it. And um, as Laura said, it's on kind of all of us, each of us, 
uh, to free our own minds and take mm. responsibility for our thoughts and our behaviors because if we don't then someone else will the nudge yeah. as well so these uh, and the book kind of does that a little bit I suppose uh, you we are nudging readers a little bit but nudging them uh, to take responsibility for themselves uh, and that's what the, the tips are for because behavioral science I mean it's is big business now really isn't it mm -hmm. yeah it's huge um, the the WHO the WEF the UN they all have behavioral science departments yeah. they recommend the use of behavioral science um, lots of businesses have their own behavioral scientists in-house or they consult people like me um, and I think generally that's okay for businesses personally obviously I'm biased but I don't think there's anything really wrong with coca-cola nudging you into buying more coca-cola yeah. there's kind of a transparency and an honesty there in that selfishness yeah. um, but it's when there's a moral imperative uh, you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions I yeah. think that's when the use of thought control basically yeah. can be quite dangerous yeah. well coca-cola don't have a misinformation unit or, exactly, or yeah. truth verifiers yeah. mm -hmm. they're just trying to make you buy their brand over the other brand mm -hmm. um, so it's very different when governments do it I mean you talk about being biz big business and you've just mentioned all the supranational organizations but I think people don't know how much it's permeated small parts of yeah. life yeah, you know yeah. back in 2011 the behavioral scientists who set up the government's behavioural insights team said we should consult with the public mm. on the use of behavioural science and yet they haven't you know here we are 2023 there's still not been any public consultations mm. there's not really any democratic mandate to nudge us but local government also has behavioural scientists well, the government agencies mm. have behavioural scientists so nudge is embedded throughout government do you feel kind of vindicated after the last book you know state of I mean because basically you were talking about you know the nudge unit mm. and then it's sort of you know the, the whole thing with COVID has sort of been unraveling hasn't it really but that was one aspect people say oh you know number 10 or oh, the government used this you know yeah and you sort of think well you were writing about it long before that that's true so the book came out early in May 2021 I can't claim it's any sort of sweet victory it's actually quite it's almost like quite a bitter feeling yes, that yes. people come around to it now but what I'd actually rather is that there is an unveiling of truth and that mm. people understand what's happening I mean you know we had the leaked whatsapp messages Matt Hancock's whatsapp messages that the Telegraph published in the lockdown files and he talked about scaring the pants off everyone mm. this is astonishing language mm -hmm. for somebody who's the Secretary of State for health. Mm -hmm. Now there were plenty of systematic reviews in the past that showed that the use of fear came with physical and mental consequences which is why it was most deliberately contraindicated in all pandemic planning before mm -hmm. and he's kind of gleefully talking about deploying a new variant to frighten people to follow the rules. Yeah. Some people will still double down on that and I would say that's largely because of cognitive dissonance. It's quite difficult to acknowledge that you might have had the wall pulled over your eyes or be manipulated it's it takes some it takes some courage to even acknowledge to yourself that you've been manipulated I mean we found in the course of researching the book just how many times we've been manipulated ourselves it was eye-opening um, so I think while some people are doubling down increasingly it's becoming accepted that the government deliberately frightened people to make them follow the rules and I think it's increasingly a difficult position to hold although amazingly David Halpern gave an interview to the Telegraph last week and he talked about how it is justified to frighten people if people's brains are I quote wrongly calibrated what does that even mean 
Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's really interesting language because what do we calibrate? We don't mm. normally talk about calibrating human beings or, or yeah. mammals or animals. Yeah. It's as though we're little bits of machinery to be fine-tuned or social units to be shuffled around a board. But I think if you're the person who enacts these policies, you're probably likely to still be sympathetic to them sometime yeah. later or even maybe be suffering from a massive case of his own personal cognitive dissonance. You, you I think, said that you sort of had a another epiphany if that's the word or, or, or realization when you were writing this book you said how many times you you are manipulated what do you mean throughout the day or what um, well I was quite cognizant of it anyway yeah. you know working in the industry yeah. but um, everything everything is manipulation uh, even this conversation you know arranging words in a certain order in order yeah. to influence framing it yes exactly order, yeah. um, any kind of communication really is designed to influence people in some way um, so you can't not be manipulated is one of the uh, learnings that we had but you can choose your manipulation so one of the chapters is choose your illusion so on Twitter you can follow angry people or you can follow successful people or mm -hmm. people who are healthy and have health advice. Isn't the natural way that people behave is to follow people for confirmation bias, isn't that right? I mean I, I, I don't seek out people who've got hugely different views to mine now, I'll be honest, who, why would I? I, sort of, I feel I know what they are, you know? I, yeah, I, I think we can all relate to that. It's yeah. unpleasant to have to expose yourself to points of view that feel jarring, yeah. but I think there is still a value in it. Yeah. Um, one thing the book's done for me, and I think it's the same for Patrick, is it's made me more consciously open-minded. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm actually seeking out reading material and experiences that take me out of my comfort zone a little bit. There's um, a quote which I adore, which is in the book, from the businessman Charlie Munger. And he said the human brain is like a human egg. So with a human egg, once a sperm gets in, there's a shut-off device. No more sperm gets into the human egg. And mm. the human brain is a bit like that. We, we allow ourselves to be fertilized by an idea, and then we're not open-minded to new ideas. Mm. But actually, one of the best things you can do to free your mind is to consciously mm. be open-minded and to take on new ideas and experiences. It can be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's worth yes. trying. Yes, um, there were a, a few areas in, in the book. I, I'm always thinking of the people who are viewers here and the people who are involved to support NCF. Um, just to fill you in, we just started these local branches. Right? And one of the reasons we have is that people who watch the channel, the most, you know, definitely the most popular complaint about modern life is feeling isolated if they do not go along with, as you said, what it seems to be an increasingly narrow set of kind of rules. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to create, I know, dare I say it, safe spaces for people to get together. And that it's proving enormously popular. Um, but in one chapter in the, in the book, you talk about how people should speak up. And uh, I think this is germane to what I'm talking about. Um, obviously they should, but isn't it very difficult for people to speak up? I mean, in what context should they speak up, do you think? Uh, well, one thing I would say, there's a principle in the book uh, which is called disrupt and reframe or uh, destroy and rebuild. Uh, so generally you have to break things down mm. before building them back up again. And that's really the essence of pure brainwashing. If you put people in a POW camp, you <coughs> kind of bombard them, uh, you play rock music all night, uh, whatever it might be. And then because they're so worn down, you yeah. can plant new ideas. The point to your question being, yes, it's difficult and it's painful to speak up, 
but you can create new things in the ashes, mm. as it were. Um, so I wrote an article in March 2020 or April 2020 uh, about how face masks have negative psychological effects. Uh, I was a bit passionate, so I called it. <laughs> I was going to say, don't forget to miss, don't you know, don't miss out the title, the Patrick. The title, the excellent title, face masks make you stupid. This okay. is how this is how right. I found this okay. is how I found Patrick. Nice I thought, oh, yeah. this is <laughs> this is interesting. He's polemic, <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very well referenced article. I put a lot of thought into it. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought about it a lot. Yes, and I referenced it. A lot of people didn't like it. Surprisingly mm -hmm. enough, um, I lost friends really? I, I certainly yeah. lost business contacts and I can put a monetary figure uh, on some of the work that I lost and it was quite painful however from that I did make some great new friends mm. and uh, new business relationships new opportunities came out of it and they, they were a lot mm. better really because they were vibrating with truth as it were uh, can I can I say yeah. you know that's that's a really it's a really interesting point there's so much we can say about speaking up first about social conformity because mm. of course social conformity is fundamental to behavioral science and nudging and it runs throughout the book mm. but I mean at the same time that Patrick wrote that I um, decided to create a kind of an art project mm. uh, where I've photograph people including myself wearing masks that were embroidered with words like obedience purity conformity mm -hmm. um, to show that faith masks were becoming a, a vestiture of faith they were becoming an article of faith rather than yes. being based on yeah. science and so at the same time we were doing these kind of different things and I came across Patrick we interview I interviewed him for a state of fear we stayed in touch and I said you know I've got this idea for a book I want to write to help people protect their minds from manipulation and he had been developing the same kind of idea for yes, a book. Yes. I also lost work and professional contacts and friendships were impacted by the stance I took at times over lockdown and masks. Nothing I said has turned out to be wrong as such but it was challenging at the time for mm. people and speaking up first can come with costs. What I will say is if you find yourself ejected from one group, mm. that group appears to offer safety because everyone is saying the same thing. You know, we're all drawn to being in a crowd where there's informational conformity and social conformity. But in a way you can't rely on people that require you to say the same thing. If you, if you leave that group, if you say something different, if you put your head above the parapet, you will find other people that have also gone out on a limb. And do you know what? Those people are people with integrity who you can trust. You find yourself in a new in-group yeah. of out-groupers. Yeah. So yeah. There's, you don't just find yourself out on your own, never to make friends ever again. There are, there are always um, positives as well as negatives from speaking up. But the reason um, we included that chapter is that free thinking and free speech are really quite symbiotic. There's a lot of talk about free speech, and thank goodness, because it's vital. You know, um, we have a free speech union in this country mm. that does really important things. You know, I'm a paid up member, yeah, and people there, can yeah. fight, fight legal battles. Mm, mm. And do you, do you want to pick up, Patrick, on the importance of social conformity in behavioral science? Yeah, so social conformity is a key pillar of behavior change, really. Um, there are certain things which make people more likely to do something, it being easy or seeming easy, there being some kind of emotional steam in the engine driving them forward, but also the perception of norms. So is everyone else doing this? Is it the done thing, the default? Is it the uh, inductive norm, which means the thing you ought to do, the ethical thing? Um, but what it really comes down to is that people like to be liked and they like to be right. And right. these are really two drivers of behavior. They like to be right 
and they like to be liked, but they also want to be, would you say, morally correct, even though they wouldn't put it that way. Yeah. Seen to be morally correct. Well, everyone, everyone believes their beliefs, really. Everyone thinks they're more or less doing the right thing. But I think what's interesting is you talked earlier about people feeling increasingly disconnected mm. and isolated thanks mm. to technology. Um, I think this moral virtue signaling, whatever you want to call it, um, it comes from a place of powerlessness and it's mm. a way of having power over other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had a, a lecture once at university, which as you probably imagine is quite left-wing um, with the students. And uh, I was talking about segmentation, so putting people into different groups. And one of the, um, the students uh, put her hand up and she said, this is really problematic, I find it offensive. And it's like the entire power dynamic shifted um, to her. And that's when I realized that this is actually kind of a power move, and I think it mm. comes from people who feel powerless. Yes, you also, you know, one doesn't on the whole generally believe people when they say that they're just sort of basically trying mm. to actually gain power aren't they um, one thing about this we talk about social conformity um, and the desire for it whatever we've got a situation I'd put to you now where you have a majority of people believing uh, certain things or should we say being in agreement about certain issues but we have what appears to be uh, a number of people at the top of society or whatever seemingly determined to ignore those views so where does the social conformity come in there because mm. if you've got you know basically I say take Brexit actually right 17 mm -hmm. million people or whatever it was voted for that um, amongst the population that is obviously a huge number of people but you had all the, the kind of great and the good at the top basically saying why this was a terrible thing, right? Yeah. And yet somehow it didn't work, did it? No. So basically, is that sort of like the wisdom of crowds or is it pure social? Because it couldn't have been social conformity, could it? Because if you were going to conform, then you would have voted to remain. Yes, but the point we're making about social conformity more in the book is that it is exploited against us mercilessly. So I can explain how. First of all, to just go back a step, social conformity isn't necessarily all bad. You know, if you mm. see a thousand people running in that direction very fast down yeah. the street, might be a jolly good reason. They might be being chased by a mammoth. Yeah. And, you know, you might want to go with them. And we don't all eat the, the berries on the bush that no one else eats. Yeah. So, you know, there are, there are evolutionary sound reasons to conform, but it's used against us. So if I give you an example, we, we know from studies that when people see crime reported on the news um, frequently, that they place law and order high on their priorities mm -hmm. of, of political matters. So people will reflect back what is shown to them. So while the majority of people may, thought, may have thought um, that we should leave the EU, that isn't what we were shown back, is it? In fact, there was quite a coordinated campaign to make people feel that they were making the morally wrong decision. Mm. They were the gammon, you know, yeah, the red-faced, yeah, yeah. jingoistic, overly patriotic fool yes. you know a pejorative was Racist used well. a, yeah a pejorative was used for them so that you wouldn't want to be in that mm. that group of silly outsiders over there you'd want to be with the good people you know all the people of the EU so social conformity um, is a real thing and it can serve some very useful purposes but it's used against and and that's the point it's understanding when it's used against you but it didn't um, work in that then, did it? Just no, well, it's one of the rare occasions that mm. people were genuinely given the power to exercise yes. their choice, yeah. and I think it would be fair to say that elites didn't like it at all.
And by the way, neither Patrick I remotely emotional on the subject of Brexit. We just wrote an article about Brexit confirmation bias mm -hmm. and instantly we were both accused of course of being Brexiteers and displaying our own confirmation right. bias. We don't really like to talk about our own voting uh, intentions or past history because it's, it's not really the point. Mm -hmm. But we weren't displaying any confirmation bias for ourselves because we're not remotely emotional about the issue. But you see it all the time, people blaming now every problem that the country has mm. on Brexit. That was sort of always going to happen, wasn't it? I mean, you, you, you say uh, when it comes to speaking up in this particular section of the book, you say that basically people, they will feel better and that they will also possibly gain another network of, of friends and associates. I totally agree with that. Um, there is a problem, isn't there, if you're at work, you know, and uh, basically you, you want to make your uh, opinion known about something or you don't want to go to an unconscious bias training course, mm -hmm. um, people are more likely, aren't they, to sort of shut up and just go along with it because they're just worried about losing their jobs, aren't they? Yeah, and that's a very understandable position to hold. but. We, w we don't recommend people speak up only for themselves because they'll right. make new friends. It's also important for society. So we quote Cass, Sun Cass Sunstein, who's a very famous architect of Nudge. Um, he's, he's one of the fathers of Nudge. He wrote the book Nudge. Mm. Um, he wrote a book also called Conformity, and he talks about how you get cascades of conformity that run through society. And that's when they can be unhelpful and everyone feels like they have to join mm. the next thing, the mm. current thing, or do what they're told. Um, and it only takes one voice of sanity mm. to reverse a cascade mm. of conformity. When you speak up, you're not just doing it for yourself, you're doing it for your group. Mm. You're doing it maybe for all of society. It shouldn't, you know, the, the story of um, the Emperor's New Clothes, oh, yes. we, we illustrate the, the chapter with that story. It shouldn't fall on one innocent child no. to call out when your politicians no. are naked. You know, it falls upon no. all of us to show some, some backbone and civic duty and speak up when necessary. Sorry, can I also add, um, there was a Czech dissident, um, embarrassingly I can't remember his name, but he became the president and he wrote a book called The Power of the Powerless and he gives this um, analogy of a greengrocer who has a communist sign, workers of the world unite in his window um, and it's kind of meaningless, he's just put it up because that's the default thing to do, yes. the norm, but there's a huge amount of power in just not complying with that very one small thing and just taking that sign down. Um, so then you're not propping up this this ideology. So you don't necessarily have to go out and be a protester and risk your job no, and, and speak no. very loudly, but it's just the small things like yeah. um, don't put pronouns in your signature or just something like that. Just this. Well, no, no, but these and are that's important. where we are. <laughs> yes, but that's, these are important things, aren't they? For example, you know, we just had Pride Pride Month, uh, or rather, actually, it's sort of turning into Pride season, isn't it? Because Everywhere you go, like I was at a hospital yesterday, the hospital's got this new, what they call pro progressive flag, which is not just pride, it's like the whole shaman. Um, people feel sort of, when I say oppressed by that, they sort of feel, I'm sick to death of this, but I can't say anything. Mm. Why I need that? That's really well. That's one theory of propaganda that it doesn't yeah. serve just to change your mind, but to remind you that you're under some kind of soft jackboot. Yes. And actually, we're talking about. I was mentioning the news before how that's that can be used to create a feeling mm. of of conformity and political priorities. You know, we think about um, we think about TV and propaganda as belonging to authoritarian and communist mm. countries. Mm. 
I don't think that's quite right. There's various ways we, we demonstrate that in the book. There is a, a chapter called Turn Off Your TV. Now, we don't, we don't really tell people what to do. We can't help going with polemic chapter titles. In fact, what we'd encourage people to do is watch less and watch it mindfully and purposefully. You don't right. have to turn off. Right. Even I still watch box sets, but I don't, don't rely on the TV news for my news. But the thing is, um, the man who invented the term brainwashing, Edward Hunter, he wrote a book called Brainwashing and the Story of the Men Who Defined It. He said that entertainment is sugarcoating for mind pills. Mm -hmm. And he said this after spending time in communist countries and interviewing men who've been a prisoner of war camps. So it's not just communist countries which do it, but, but when they do, it's often not one person that creates it, it's a whole team because that's what's needed for the psychological effect. You would think, you would think when you watch TV, when you watch a drama or a soap opera or film, that it's the preserve of the creative people who wrote it, but that's not always true. What's quite helpful to us in our society is the fact that behavioural scientists actually sometimes lay their plans out in black and white. At the moment, there's quite a lot of noise on social media about the very lurid weather maps, about all of the yes. the panic, yes. of, uh, but the, the climate doom mongering. That's only the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's happening to make you decarbonize your lifestyle by using your TV. So Sky, licensed broadcaster, and the Behavioral Insights team, when it was one third owned by the Cabinet Office, wrote a joint report called The Power of TV. And it was all about how to use the power of television to make people decarbonize their lifestyle. One important thing it said was TV has been used for public health and listed examples of how TV has been used before by the nudgers. Mm. So if you've ever had any sense that something a bit artificial has happened on TV, you might be right. It might be an example of social engineering. So yes, we're seeing the weather maps turn completely lurid. We're also uh, seeing modelling being used again um, in, with climate, you know, talking about heat related deaths. Well, I can guarantee nobody's been around each European country and um, consolidated all of the death registration data and worked out how many people have died from heat. This is modelling, i.e. it's a little bit confected. Yes, yes. Um, there was a, a news report on Sky yesterday that drew attention to a car that burst into flames on an LA freeway and says it happens in a blistering heat wave and then puts underneath we don't know this was heat related. Well we do know it's not heat related because we haven't stopped all cars from driving in the global south. Yeah. These, these are to plant the idea in your mind of heat being dangerous but during COP26 all of the British soap operas converged on climate storylines yeah. and characters swapped over and the, and the soaps um, cross-referenced each other. There's actually a very large-scale concerted campaign to use a gamut of TV programming from news and weather reports to children's TV to soap operas to influence your thinking. This is all very much sort of like the ends justify the means, isn't it? That's, that's their thinking about it. I mean, yeah. It's not just, I mean, you, you're talking about the all sorts of improvements seems to me that that is the vital point here. I mean, you do know when you're being lectured, um, but whether it's a soap opera or whether it's a drama, um, it's not just a simple storytelling, is it? I mean, I, you use example actually as well in, the, in your book about how it distorts people's views of uh, reality, the, the, you know, in the sense of example, I think you use uh, Britain's 3% black population. Yeah. But in fact, if you go to the television, I think it's something like eight, we get people writing about yes. this all the time, 8% on television in terms yeah. of uh, non-white. But at the same time, um, people say, well, look, the commercials now on ITV, um, you know, there are no white people, particularly yeah. no white men in, in them. 
So would you say that that is, that, that is, you know, basically people are being conditioned or what? Um, so I'm, I'm in a uh, mixed marriage myself. My, right. my wife is ethnically Indian, so obviously no problem against it. But it's every advert, seemingly, every yeah. advert has, has an interracial couple. Um, and, you know, it's tempting to think there's a, like a conspiracy and maybe there is an element of that. But I think it's more, um, it's more kind of an ideology that's kind of naturally developed, particularly people who work in advertising tend to be very woke, very, yes. very kind of yes. liberal, yes. left-wing. I mean, they're creative. Creative people tend to like to um, take apart taboos and they like to disintegrate things and creativity is all about kind of and breaking boundaries. And put new taboos there. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so, yeah. But the problem is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Exactly, yeah. I mean, you are, I think something like 3% of our population is black, yes. but according to the Creative Diversity Network, 8% of on-screen talent is black mm -hmm. and, and you know you know I have no problem with black people on TV it'd be no, the no, last no, point no, I'd make no. but a YouGov poll as well showed that British people think about 20% of the country is black mm. so what it happens Same is it distorts reality this is this is an important general point about TV mm. people think they are seeing reality but it's mm. the opposite a TV mm. screen is a screen we use screens to hide things it's like Plato's cave so you're seeing a, a distortion come back at you and that of course is exactly why it's used for propaganda is it still as powerful you know you say the power of tv is it still even in this day and age we know like here we are on youtube right or you know social media do people is it still the most powerful uh, uh pastime you it's, know, it's still the number one recreation really? activity in the uk and the us and according to the latest ofcom study it's still the major source of news in this country of course i think that's going to be different according to different demographics i have the figures on the top of my head uh, yeah. but young people are predominantly getting their news aren't they from TikTok, disturbingly. Wow. I mean, my, my son, worse. my teenage sons do that. They tell me about the news and I go, where did you see this? Yeah. I say, see, not read, because yeah. I know what we're seeing, and it's TikTok. Um, but overall, yes, TV is still a very powerful medium. So do you think people should actually just turn, turn off? I think, you know, the chapter heading is turn off Not the TV. right now, after this <laughs> programme. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, uh, of course. But uh, I no longer have a TV, for example. Mm. Um, I just found that I got more and more angry. I felt always in opposition to it. Um, I, it's, it, has it been freeing? Yes, I suppose in a way. It's just that when you go back and look at it now, um, you know, it feels rather alien. You know, mm -hmm. um, would you? Do you have tele Do you have television? Do you watch TV? Uh, a lot less yeah. than I used to. Uh, we don't watch broadcast TV. We gave it up for Lent one yeah. year and never went back um, my goal is to get rid of the TV but it's a bit of a, a bit of a tussle with my wife yes. um, yeah um, you have to something better to do Patrick we did actually do a week of TV free and it was lovely we just sat together talked to each mm. other played with our son listened to podcasts uh, but that allure of the hypnotic screen kind of pulled us back although not as much Yes. I still like box sets and films, so I'm mm. keeping my TV. The thing is, I had to keep a TV license yeah. because my sons at school had to watch BBC Bite Size. Mm. So I was trapped by the very thing I'd love to get rid of. I'd love to stop paying the license fee, but I just couldn't because of education. Um, I mean, I've, I've been changing my habits as a result of researching and writing the book. The thing I struggle with more is, is social media. Yes. It's easy to watch less TV and listen to less radio because like you, I find myself kind of in opposition. And the thing is that the less you watch, the more when you go back to it, the more 
bizarre mm -hmm. it seems actually you see exactly what I was reminded of when I was reading your book is there was a great book by an author called Rod Dreher I don't know if you've heard of him but he wrote the Benedictine option and that was much more religiously based but it was essentially about how can you resist you know in in the case of the Benedictine option it was almost saying you can't resist so basically be become effectively a monk you know go into into hmm. a form of hibernation this really is about how you can in a way sort of fight fight back I suppose um, and what it does come down to in a way it, we didn't have before is this social media a tsunami of social media I find that I like to think oh I'm not the addictive type and everything but I'm always on it now when I think about it always you know you can tell because your eyes start to get rather sore mm. after a while my you? fingers get numb from yes, scrolling so exactly, much sometimes exactly so what do you, you've given advice in these chapters when it comes to social media so what should you do I mean if you want to stop your children as it were you know basically uh, you know being affected by this what do you just make sure they don't have phones or what well uh, you can kind of nudge yourself and the uh, important nudge here is something called the foot in the door technique um, right. so rather than doing a big thing at once which could be overwhelming difficult intimidating just make small gradual changes to yeah. get there so I don't think we'd say stop watching sorry stop using social media forever starting today but just see if you can uh, bring it down a bit gradually over time and there are certain practical techniques which can help uh, some research has shown the power of for example if there's an app you use a lot just put it in the second screen of your phone rather than on the home screen right. uh, put your phone into grayscale it's something that I've done and it really works I mean real life pops in comparison makes uh, makes your phone so terribly boring, boring yeah. but you do need to turn the color back on for the sat nav um, and use your screen time uh, facilities mm -hmm. um, I actually have given the passcode of screen time to my wife so if I want to use more than my allotted time on Twitter I have to yes. go and grovel for it but I, I just worked out she set the code as my son's birthday All right. so I figured it out but I'll have yeah. to change it see later. this is how desperate we are to, <laughs> to you know th that's the power of how addictive it is you know you know, on Twitter they have this slot machine effect you know you can pull the mm. pull the screen down you, you know you catch up on your Twitter then you go onto your WhatsApp and then your LinkedIn and you think oh there might be something new on Twitter by now and you go yeah. back and you scroll down and of course it dings and you get these little colorful emojis it's designed to be like slot machines in a casino you know you, yes. ca you can't help oh, you can't yes. help it so that's why sometimes you need these mechanistic and environmental techniques I mean in the book we we give people mechanistic principles but also psychological principles to to make their mind more resilient but if you have to rely on, on a mechanistic one like giving your spouse your password then you should I um, included the story of booking myself into a convent to do a, a full silent digital detox it was really hard now I'm back my addiction is fully back to where it was a year ago but did it but work for a while yeah it did yeah it did I think actually what I might need to do is if not go and spend time with nuns in silent contemplation I, although I liked it I might I think I'd like to do that again I think I need to probably have regular breaks yes. because that allows me to reset yeah. But the main thing is, if you understand as well how social media works, if you understand how the algorithms are designed to 
prioritize content, you need to push it up, to push it down, to play on your emotion, how it's all driven upon engagement. If you understand the tricks, you can engage with it more mindfully. Also, another thing you can do is you can sandbox accounts. You know, you should really only have one ID verified account, right? Mm. But you could have two mm. and you can use them for different things. Mm. And in that way, you can fool the environment a little bit. So, um, you know, I found I started uh, signing up to dating experts for research for the book, yeah, yeah, I yeah. must add, yeah. and um, watching dating videos because I wanted to see what kind of techniques, first of all, that they use, but that they would encourage me to use on other people. I did the research so no one else has to. But what I found was on my Instagram, all these little dating experts kept popping up, you know. And if you slow down, you know, these, these programs track you so aggressively that if you just slow down a tiny bit, you get lots more of them. So I was creating separate accounts for separate purposes to kind of keep it hygienic. Mm, I, see. I would also say it may be difficult to go backwards in terms of your social media and technology use, but, mm. but definitely try not to go forward. So stay away from the headsets. Would be I mean, this really amazing. is about trying to get people to take back more power, isn't it? And I mean, also to tell them that they actually have more power than they maybe think. Isn't that right? You can, as it were, sort of say no to the nudging, you know, with a few steps and mm. a bit of self-discipline. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, I mean, we would say that no man is an island, as mm. John Donne said. Mm. You know, you, you can't often be a hermit on your own and you might not want to. We don't recommend that people cut themselves off from all types of manipulation. You know, we want to climb clean with you. We're, we're trying to influence you too, to buy a book so that you can learn not to be influenced. Yes. Persuasion is as old as democracy. We're doing it all the time. We're oh, always yes. persuading yeah. each other. But you should at least have the passwords or you know the, the drawbridge to your own brain it is about taking back control because i think what people don't realize is the amount of information we're bombarded with mm. and the fact that everybody from you know dating experts to uh, charities to governments are constantly competing for your attention means your brain is territory that that people are fighting in but you're the target and so you you do need to take control back and while the nudges have a very dim view of us, you know, they see us as irrational um, or bits of machinery to be calibrated. Mm. It's not the view that we take. We're actually really optimistic. I think human beings are incredible. Our brains are wonderful and we have yeah. every right to be in control of what goes into them and how we ingest it and use it. That's the point, actually, because it is essentially rather a contemptuous view of hum humanity, isn't it, actually? to be doing this sort of uh, nudging. It sort of shows, uh, you know, regarding people as sheep almost, you know, and so this is a way not to be. It's reductive. Yes. Laura and Patrick, thank you very, very much. This is the book, Free Your Mind, available obviously on Amazon, but also in book, all good bookshops, say, or the ones that are still with us. Um, very, very interesting book indeed. Thank you very, very much for coming and talking about it. Um, we've actually got a few questions just for our exclusive members if you'll stay with us. Um, but in the meantime, see you next week. Bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. 
As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you. Thank you.